You're listening to the Corbett Report. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Questions for Corbett, that monthly series where you send in the questions and I answer them. And you will excuse me if I am a little bit bleary-eyed. It is extremely late in the evening as I record this for you, but don't worry, I shall persevere as long as you guys keep it down out there because my wife and child, children, are sleeping in the next room. So, uh... Let's try not to wake them up. Um, As always, there's many, many different ways to get in your questions for this series. You can tweet me, you can contact me via my contact form, or you can use the SpeakPipe application on my contact form to send me an audio message, or you can send me a video uh, through YouTube or Vimeo or any video sharing platform. Lots of different ways to get your questions in for this series, but as always, members of the Corbett Report are prioritized, and you can leave your questions directly in the post on CorbettReport.com for this edition of Questions for Corbett. And as always, we'll start by going back into the conversation from last edition of QFC, where we had a lively discussion uh, in all of the different things that were touched on in that episode, including some of the questions I had for you guys out there. A lot of discussion about good introductory resources for people encountering the uh, the financial fraud and the monetary system and the Federal Reserve. And so lots of good discussion in there. Thank you all for all of that. And discussion on other matters as well, like kudzu, it's great because we can eat it and things like that. So I do appreciate all that discussion. And there were a few questions in there from, uh, from the listeners. So I'll address the ones that I think I'm able to. Uh, let's start with Vlad the Impaler, who writes... First, I admit that I'm a newbie to this line of thought of volunteerism. I think you mean voluntarism. So bear with me if my question seems silly to you. In such a society of free association, what is to prevent monopoly from forming, especially over existential life support systems like water, obviously a localized commodity, or one that could be kept localized by a monopoly with possible price gouging as the result? How would the environment be protected from, say, overlogging or logging in environmentally sensitive areas that could damage the overall life support system of an area? How would a consortium of individuals, say, extracting iron ore, be stopped from externalizing the cost of pollution their operation causes as their price for a ton of iron would be cheaper than a competitor who is mindful, like old Fezziwig and the two new entrepreneurs Marley and Scrooge? Would law in all its majesty of logic still have a place in a free society? All right, thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much for the very extensive and wide-ranging questions there. I hope you appreciate that is pretty much like saying, how will a free society work? (laughs) You know, lay it out point by point. There's a lot in there, and each one of those points could be a, not just a podcast, but a series of podcasts unto itself. So (laughs) you'll forgive me if my answer here has to be necessarily a bit brief, but I think generally speaking, you raise extremely important points, and one of the important points um, to, to talk about in regards to a free society, voluntarist society, would be to say that it is not a panacea. It will not solve all human problems. It will allow people to find solutions that are good for them and those around them. So uh, that will not, I think, in any uh, possible feasible situation lead to utopia. I don't think utopia will exist when we have fallible human beings at play. But uh, it, uh, I think the argument to be made is not only that it is more ethical and moral to allow people to come to these decisions without the intervention of a third party that is monopolizing uh, a certain geographical area and dictating to everyone what can or cannot happen within that area, but also secondarily that even if we just take it from a utilitarian perspective, and I do not make the utilitarian argument, but if you were to make a utilitarian argument, it is that governments... Uh, in fact, actually make all of those matters worse than free association would. So to demonstrate some of those points, I'll just point you in the direction of some resources that could be used in the construction of some of the podcast episodes that would deal with some of these questions. Uh, For example, on the myth of natural monopolies, we did cover that specifically in Questions for Corbett number 28. So I will direct you back there, and the link in the show notes will direct you straight to that question in QFC 28, and the answer with the various resources that I provided at that time. I will also send you to um, the Tom Woods podcast, episode, 106, uh, episode 690, on government, the market, and environmental protection, where he interviews Ryan M. Yonk uh, about a book that he co-authored called Nature Unbound, 
Bureaucracy versus the Environment, a very interesting study of how bureaucracy and government actually invariably makes these matters worse in various different ways. So um, a lot to explore there, and as I say, that could be a complete episode into itself. Uh, The myth of externalities and the public good is another point that you raise there. Uh, For an intro overview that I think is quite good and quite understandable, but does get into some of the details of that question, I will point you to a lecture by Peter G. Klein that I think is quite helpful in that understanding for a more in-depth review. I will point you to chapter 23, section 6 of uh, Human Action by Ludwig von Mises, talking about externalities and public good and private property and how that all functions together or should. Uh, for a very a- very academic treatment of one specific subset of this question or problem, I'll point you to an academic paper on the question of Pareto optimality. <laughs> so if you uh, want to know more about Pareto optimality, or if you do and you want to know how a, a free marketeer would argue for that, uh, against the, the status quo on that, uh, I'll point you to that. Those are just some of the resources, again, that you could use to come to a, an understanding of that in a free market sense. And then finally, on the myth of law or lawless anarchism, um, a simple explanation that I'll point you to is a very simple ex- uh, article called What, what Anarchy is Not?, by Larkin Rose that also has some illustrative uh, videos by various people in there that I think are helpful in coming to a good understanding of the fact that anarchy does not imply lawlessness. It implies no rulers, but no, not no rules. And there is a difference and it is not a semantic thing. It is not a, a trick to say that that has a real, there is a real ideology behind that. And that's what we have to try to drive at understanding. So I think that article is a good entree into that. But for a more scholarly treatment, uh, former Corbett Report guest, uh, Gary Chartier, who you might remember from interview 589. So it's a few years ago now, but um, he has a book on Anarchy and Legal Order, Law and Politics for a Stateless Society, which is a quite academic and in-depth exploration of those issues. So I'll point you to all of those resources. Again, the links to each and every one of those things will be in the show notes for this. Again, there's so much to talk about with each and every one of these points that it's something we'll be circling back to again and again and again and again and again. I'm sure for, well, probably the rest of the Corbett Report's history. All right. Um... Let's move on to the next point in the questions and comments from the last edition of this series from Corbett Report members. We have Corbett Report member Rob32367 writing, I was watching The World According to Seymour Hirsch and his explanation about the killing of Osama bin Laden. Do we give much credence to his version that we did actually kill OBL when Osama and co. say we did, but that they really screwed up how they delivered the story? that he was basically our prisoner in Abbottabad and they decided one day to to take him out. I am continuing to look into it, but would appreciate other people's views on this. Thank you for the question. I will provide my own views uh, in case you missed it. At the time, I did write an editorial about this called Limited Hangout, Why the Osama Story is Being Resurrected Now, which points to uh, some of the geopolitical, I think, machinations behind that particular story being brought up in that particular way at that particular time. But uh, on the broader point, yes, I do think it is a limited hangout. Whether or not Seymour Hirsch necessarily is aware of that, um, but certainly he is one of these journalists who does the uh, the pay-for-play with access to government officials who will be his uh, his sources on these stories. And I don't mean pay-for-play in monetary sense. I mean that he obviously provides a certain release valve for certain information to get out to the public. And um, I think he's used by his sources more than he uses his sources, if you know what I mean. So I don't know if he's even a willing or witting um, participant in these deceptions, but I think he can easily be manipulated into them. For more discussion on that, I'll point you to a Boiling Frogs post roundtable that I was not a part of, but I think is worth watching on the timing and orchestration of Seymour Hersh's Bin Laden kill. Um, so those links will be in the show notes for you to check out in more detail. Thank you for the question. Let's move on to Not This Little Frog, who writes, What are we to make of the recent article, uh, U.S.-NATO-Turkey Invasion of Northern Syria, CIA Failed Turkey Coup Lays Groundwork for broad, broad, Broader Middle East War, by Michelle Chosodovsky, in light of the recent interview, number 
1202, for those keeping track, between James, Sibel, and Spiro, where we were talking about the uh, the Turkey and its position in NATO and whether it was going to withdraw and all of that. Um, again, uh, in case you haven't seen it, I will point you to interview 1205, which was a few episodes, a few interviews later, and after this comment was left, or maybe around the time of this comment anyway, um, in which Sibel and Spiro and I reconvened, had another roundtable about the events that had played out with Turkey and the invasion of Syria, um, responding, for example, to uh, Michelle Chosodovsky's article. So uh, a lot more fleshing out there, more than I can do uh, justice to by talking about in this context. And then finally, uh, from the Corporate Report members last month, we had this question from Teresa. How does it benefit the powers of the chessboard to create situations that result in mass migrations of persons from their home country into Europe, the U.S., and other countries? What am I missing in order to understand how that benefits those in power? Thank you for the question, Teresa. I think the question is, um, those in power, I mean, not, we're not just talking about the political puppets at this point, we're talking about the real string pullers, and what is their real objective? And I think destabilization of... Uh, of the nation-state system as we've known it is part of their ultimate objective of creating a new world order from the pieces, the ashes of the old system. So I think there's that element to it. And we've talked, I believe, in the last episode about the clash of civilizations and how that works into the next stage in terms of a climbing up the, the rungs of the ladder towards global identity. Well, we have to have broader and broader identity baskets that we place ourselves into. And at this point, we are forming this idea that it's the Western civilization identity versus the you know, the other, the Oriental, the Eastern, the Muslim, you know, whatever, however that's defined and however it has been defined over the centuries, it's the same old identity politics. And it's uh, part of creating these collectives in order to get the collectives to clash, create massive problems for everyone so that people will beg for a solution. Oh, please, global government, won't you come in? That's the broad outlines of the answer to that for more in-depth At the time that I record this QFC, I don't know when this is going to be released, but at the time I'm recording it, we haven't yet recorded, but we are about to record a a NewsBud roundtable on this question in particular about the migration crisis and what this is really about and the powers behind it. So stay tuned for more in-depth on that. All right, let's uh, open up the mailbag, and we're going to go to an email from Stephen who wrote... In the YouTube video, Modern Money and Public Purpose 1, The Historical Evolution of Money and Debt, Michael Hudson talks about the reason behind the transfer of technology from the USA to China. If this adds or retracts from your thesis, I think he's referring to my episode on China and the New World Order and various articles I've written around those that, uh, that theme. If this adds or retracts from your thesis, it would be good to hear about it in Questions for Corbett. Also, seem to me to be irrational and not part of the, the problem in the sense that their dollar accumulation was overwhelmingly, it seems to me, based upon our trade deficit. The consequence of, well, no. uh, which they chose instead of raising the standard of living of their own population, it seems to be the triumph of their private sector that expanded exports and kept wages down in order to do so. So it seems to me that was an irrational choice on the Chinese part to accumulate these surpluses in a country that really could use them for uh, increasing the standard of living. Uh, They had national security uh, concerns for this. They needed to build up enough money so America could never destroy them like it had destroyed uh, Russia and uh, Korea and the other countries in the Asia crisis of uh, uh, 1997. Uh, 1906. Uh, uh, they wanted. They needed to protect themselves. Now that uh, Europe uh, and the United States economy is uh, shrinking with debt deflation, now they are going to turn to the domestic mar- uh, market and indeed begin to raise uh, wages very sharply. So the output of China that used to go to the West is now indeed going to go to their own uh, customers. Uh, they uh, their uh, dollar reserves will be spent mainly in trying to buy foreign raw materials that are needed to go into the goods and services uh, that they produce. Uh, But they are indeed going to now turn to the uh, internal market. They had very good national security reasons for uh, accumulating dollars first. They needed to obtain the Western productive technology, and the only way to do this 
was to make a political deal letting enough American vested interests get rich off China that they were supporting uh, the government in uh, permitting this technology to be transferred to China rather than treating it like it treated the Soviet Union. All right, first, well, somewhat tangentially, let me just object to the way that Michael Hudson seems to slip in a very status quo and very mainstream reading of the Cold War narrative into that uh, that picture that he's painting, because uh, it seems ludicrous to me to think that the Soviet Union was anything other than a paper tiger that was purposefully built up by the West, quote-unquote, uh, that amorphous term. But clearly the Lend-Lease programs and uh, technology transfers were absolutely essential to the survival of the Soviet Union. The West absolutely kept it going. So that is somewhat tangential to the point being made here, but it is analogous. Again, I think that is what is happening with China. So on that note, of course, you can see the pioneering work of Antony Sutton, but I'll throw in even there's, I mean, it's even mainstream accepted history at this point. The the Lend-Lease programs and, and other forms of aid were absolutely essential to the continuing survival of the Soviet Union when they were the big menace and it was the big Cold War and we, they were at each other's throats. No, uh, the Soviet Union was built up through Western technology and, and finance. Um, but more to the point, I think he is correct to point out that the dollar accumulation that has been a result of the, let's, let's speak plainly, the, the whoring out of China as a manufacturing base to build the ba- export-based economy, um, in the neocolonialization of China uh, for Western, quote-unquote, business interests. Absolutely correct. That, that, that had to happen um, within the logic of the system as it exists. That's the way to build up an economy, and it's exactly what Japan did. It's exactly what Korea did. I mean, even just looking in East Asia, that's the path to prosperity for all of these countries that are now enjoying the benefits of those that prosperity, quote-unquote. Um, so that's obviously what China has done. So I think he's right to point out that that was a necessary step. Uh, and now they are trying to turn into a more domestically-based economy, um, not having much success at all with that yet. But hey, you know, I, I understand the logic of that. Um, I guess my fundamental difference is in the suggestion that this, um, this act was all an act to just buy into the system, but then they're going to stab, stab the, uh, the, the, the business interests that put them there in the back. And, you know, then they're, now they're going to be all about Chinese, you know, uh, national pride or whatever. Uh, I think that is a, a pipe dream and a delusion because uh, the, the, the people who were puppeteering this whole thing, which is what I went through in that China and the New World Order episode and various other works that I've done, are, of course, on the Western side, you have people like the Rockefellers and their ilk, and on the Chinese side, you have the, the eight immortals, but, but the wheelers and dealers like Rong Yi Ren and people like that, their, their ilk, have always had that shared dream of, of creating a new world system from the ashes of the old. And of course, how do you do that? You have to destroy uh, what already exists. So the American quote-unquote oligarchy is no more American than, you know, than than, uh, you can say an American corporation, transnational corporation is American. It doesn't care about America at all. It cares about the furthering of its own goals and ideas and and, and survivability into the future. In the exact same way, these oligarchical families and institutions, again, do not care about nation states. It's the same in China. It's the same in America. So I think it's just the wrong way to frame the entire thing. Um, Now, having said that, I mean, the idea here, here's what proves, what gives the lie to this narrative, is that every one of these counter-institutions that the Russians and the Chinese and the BRICs are throwing out there, um, that are, that are going to be the saviors of the world from this, you know, dastardly American empire, which is a dastardly American empire, there's no doubt about that, but these saviors that are coming along are not saviors at all, they are intimately involved, um, whether it's the AIIB, whether it's the uh, the BRICS Bank, whether it's the, Putin's Eurasian Economic Union, they are all either explicitly modeled on or share directorships with 
the World Bank, the IMF, the European Union, all those globalist institutions. They are all interconnected at the top. And I've talked and written about that before, so I'll throw some links in um, if you need to read more about that and the BRICS phony opposition and the way that's being set up. Um, Now, having said all of that, I think there is something to the idea that Hudson is throwing in there that I'm sure there are people within the Chinese oligarchy and within the Russian oligarchy and all of the other you know, oligarchs that, that are trying to vie for position in this new world order. Uh, there is something to the idea that, uh, that I'm sure some of them do think they're going to be able to stab the others in the back and they're going to, you know, come out on top. Um, I think it's very naive. I think that the, the powers that shouldn't be that have dominated the Western world and thus the world economy for the last century, at least, are going to be the same ones at the top of the scrap heap. You know, eventually they factor in a bit of backstabbing treachery attempts by these uh, upstarts, I'm sure, into their plans. They're not stupid. There are many things, but they are not stupid or naive. So I... I doubt that's going to have much of an effect. And as I say, I think the majority of the oligarchy on both sides, if this is a two-sided coin, on both sides have share much of the same goals. And of course, it's always about jockeying for position in that new glo- global governmental system. But the Chinese are working for it. It is documentable on the record, as I just wrote about with the SDR World Order, the People's Bank of China uh, governor and various people in the Chinese oligarchs, uh, oligarchy have been on record since 2009 arguing explicitly for the SDR to become the world reserve currency administered, of course, by the International Monetary Fund, who are going to be the stewards to, you know, steward over the world economy, right? Um, that can be trusted. And of course, completely unaccountable in any even token remote democratic sense. So it just gets to the point where what on earth are we expecting to come from this savior, uh, uh, saviors on the other side of this phony uh, conflict? It's in every sim- single way I can think of, it's a scam. Um, but hey, I mean, I, I'm sure that the Hudsons and Engdahls and other people out there who really seem to think that the Chinese and the Russians are looking out for their own national interests, I would love nothing more than for them to be right and me to be wrong about all of this. I would love to be wrong, and I hope I am proven wrong, and that there really are pockets of genuine resistance that genuinely are against the idea of global government and everything. I just don't think that's the case. But hey, time will tell. And um, some will be proven right, others will be proven wrong. All right, um, we'll leave that there. Obviously, a lot more to talk about, but uh, let's move on to the next question. This one, an email from Pat, who writes... When you point out bin Laden as a CIA asset, this begs the questions. As a devout Muslim and knowingly a CIA asset, surely he would have known they were only using him to harm and weaken the USSR, the US being the main supporters and funders of Israel, the bitter enemy of Muslims. The same situation applies to today's ISIS leaders. All right, yes, okay. Um, Well, there are several ways to handle a seeming conundrum like that. One of which is, I think, a fairly mainstream, to the extent that it is mainstream history, that obviously bin Laden was part of the Arab Afghans that were receiving some of the funding and support indirectly, of course, uh, through the Pakistani ISI, from the CIA. I mean, there is some acknowledgement of that in mainstream history. It's, of course, not played up, but it's not exactly total conspiracy theory realm. But within that narrative, of course, they're saying, well, of course, the immediate threat was the Soviet Union, and they had to get them out of Afghanistan. And then bin Laden turned his attention to what was happening in Saudi Arabia. And of course, when the U.S. troops arrived there and the U.S. became the Great Satan and all of that. There, I mean, that's part of the actual mainstream narrative, um, or at least the, the not completely out there <laughs> narrative. But having said that, I, I, I think from the, the real conspiratorial view of this, uh, the question is, to what extent, I mean, A, to what extent was bin Laden the real mastermind of a real network in the sense that they want us to think of al-Qaeda as a network of, of uh, an organization in some sense with operatives who were working for al-Qaeda. Um, I, th- I think uh, I've certainly talked about this before, others have as well, um, that al-Qaeda, as we were asked to 
believe in it, was a construction in the New York courtroom in 2000 in the trial where they tried to make Osama bin Laden into the leader of an organization that they could then put him on trial for being the leader of in RICO um, uh, filings. So basically to make him like a, like a mob don that, where you can uh, go after him legally for things that his, uh, his subordinates do. Um, that, of course, that, that's the way they try to go after mafia figures. That's, so that's the type of organization they tried to paint the picture of with al-Qaeda. To some extent, maybe that became a self-fulfilling prophecy after 9-11 and after what was essentially a, an advertisement campaign for the idea of al-Qaeda as a brand. And then you have anyone who, I mean, including genuine Muslim crazies and all sorts of others, mercenaries and whatever, seeing, oh, this is where the money is, this is where the funding is, this is where the action is, we'll call ourselves al-Qaeda, we'll swear allegiance to Osama, whatever. So to a certain extent, maybe after 9-11 that became a thing, but before 9-11 there was no organization in that sense. Um, And secondarily, to whatever extent Osama bin Laden thought he may have been the key driver of all of this, he was more of a preacher and obviously providing funding through his extremely enormously wealthy family who disowned him, quote-unquote. More on that in my uh, last word on Osama bin Laden. But um, to whatever extent he thought that he may have been a director of some sort of organization and had power, uh, he was a puppet who was being steered um, by real powers um, who were under him, quote-unquote. And I point to Ayman al-Zawahiri. I did an episode on Know Your Terrorists, Ayman al-Zawahiri, that I will exhort you to look at. I think that's probably the real nexus. And when you factor in the the testimony of Sibel Edmonds, talking about it was Zawahiri who was meeting with officials, uh, Western military, uh, Pentagon officials and NATO officials uh, in in the Balkans in the late 90s and and in Central Asia and the Caucasus. I mean, that's, I think, where we have to locate the where the real duplicity comes in, and who is Ayman al-Zawahiri, and was he really, is he really the radical Muslim that he claims to be? Um, of course, all of this also, again, is more complicated by the fact that Osama bin Laden probably did die before 2011, probably as early as 2001. Uh, I, I'm not 100% set on that, but it's certainly plausible to me that Osama bin Laden died years earlier than we thought. So to what extent did he, was he involved in any of the post 9-11 Al-Qaeda, you know, branding and, and propaganda and all of that? An open question. All right. Um, well, I think we'll close the book on that question for now. Uh, let's go to a video question that I received from Dan in Chicago. I'm uh, recording this question from Detroit, Michigan. But I recently took a train to Chicago and I found this on the subway, the blue line. And I thought, well, that's weird. And then I wondered, who's behind this campaign? It's got its own hashtag, for crying out loud. So I took a photo of it. Coincidentally, I was with a friend from Brazil and I was going to the Brazilian consulate because I'm planning on moving there. Now, the next day, outside of the Airbnb I was staying at, because I'm into uh, the share economy, um, there was this picture. And I thought, this has got some serious money behind it. So I wondered if you knew anything about this um, campaign to stop Zika or whatever it is, hashtag stop Zika. Um, yeah, if you could, if you could look into that, or if you know anybody that knows anything, I really appreciate it, and I understand you. You know, follow the money, right? So follow the money. Who's behind this, and how much money are they going to make? Thank you. Thank you very much for the question. Dan, and for the benefit of the audio listeners to the audio version of this podcast, um, you can always, of course, check out the video at my website or on YouTube, but the video is showing pictures of this hashtag Stop Zika campaign that uh, Dan was finding around Chicago and was wondering, where is the funding for this all coming from? Well, there is a uh, prosaic explanation for this and a 
unsurprising explanation. There are also some interesting connections here, so let's unpack some of this. Um, first of all, with regard to Illinois itself, it did receive a half-million-dollar federal grant to fight the Zika virus. I'll put the link in the show notes as a kind of stopgap until there was federal, uh, an official federal Stop Zika, Anti-Zika program and funding in place. Um, so that's where the money for this Stop Zika hashtag campaign in Chicago is presumably coming from. But uh, on the broader picture of this, as to the monetary interests in the Zika hype, um, it is... Uh, it, it's interesting to follow some of those numbers, and they, again, it shouldn't be surprising to people who saw my coverage about the swine flu hype slash swindle um, and the WHO's role in that, or, of course, there was the Ebola scare, ridiculous scare, uh, a year or two ago, that even some of the quote-unquote alt-media played into. You're all going to die of Ebola. Um, but, again, exactly in the same way with Zika uh, and the hype that's gone on around it, as a attempt to get the cash cow going once again. And uh, I'll, of course, throw in my link to, uh, a link to my interview with John Rappaport, where we talked about the Zika freakout and, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of actual scientific basis for it. But also, let's look at an uh, article from the vaccinereaction.org from May of this year called Birth of the Zika Industry, which says in part, quote, in a few short months, however, Zika has suddenly been transformed into a cause celeb, the source of tremendous fear and angst for the public. So, naturally, Zika has now become an industry, and it will later become a market. The key product in this nascent industry will be vaccines. But first come the players, the companies that will develop, produce, market, and sell the vaccines. Then come the fin financiers that, in addition to pharmaceutical companies themselves, include governments, private investors, and international organizations that will front the money for the development work in the hope of either earning spectacular profits or a miraculous solution to a perceived health crisis. There are no shortage of players. Why? Because Zika is a new industry, and new industries represent commercial opportunities. Money. The U.S. government has offered to jumpstart the industry by proposing $1.9 billion dollars for Zika research. The World Health Organization has set up the UN Zika Response Multi-Partner Trust Fund, MPTF, to finance critical underfunded priorities in the response to the Zika outbreak. The WHO announced on February 17, 2016, that it would seek $56 million from its members, member countries to help combat Zika. Included in those funds would be money to fast-track the development of vaccines. And even wealthy philanthropists like Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen are doing their part to spur on this new industry. On February 19, 2016, Mr. Allen announced two grants worth more than $2 million aimed at fighting Zika. Of the total, $1.5 million will go to the American Red Cross in support of efforts to control the mosquitoes that transmit the virus and to educate the public in Brazil and other Latin American countries. The remaining $550,000 will go to Cambio Diagnostic Systems, Inc. of Medford, New York, to develop a suite of rapid tests to quickly diagnose Zika and differentiate it from diseases with similar symptoms. It is a given that wherever there is plenty of money up for grabs, the politicians will get involved to try and funnel some of it into their constituencies. For example, U.S. Senator Charles Schumer of New York has been pushing hard for Congress to approve the $1.9 billion request for Zika research, Senator Schumer is hoping some of those funds will go to SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. End quote. And that article, I suggest you do continue reading. It goes on to talk about the 18 companies that are vying for being, you know, anointed as the one that will develop the Zika vaccine. So there's a lot of detail there. And again, none of that should be surprising. There, It, it, it is a truism. There's federal funds up to a couple billion dollars up for grabs. Of course, you're going to get the, the companies and the financiers swooping in. And of course, the politicians scooping up the graft off the top. Just another example of that, as reported by uh, James Evan Pilato on The Morning Monarchy, Florida governor has financial ties to Zika Mosquito Company. So surprise, surprise, you know, politicians are looking to get in on all of this as well as usual. But having said all of that, all of that, as I say, is not surprising, uh, but it is good to document and have on record. But there's another interesting aspect of this that I makes sense, but I wasn't actually looking out for specifically until this question was brought to my attention. Uh, we'll start with an uh, article called Raja Calls on Congress to Pass Anti-Zika Funding Now, noting that Raja Krishnamurti, a Democrat from Schaumburg, today called on Congress to 
pass a clean anti-Zika funding bill now that immediately addresses the public health crisis. Republicans have insisted on taking away funding from Planned Parenthood as a condition to providing money to fight the Zika virus and develop a vaccine, said Krishnamurti, the Democratic nominee in the 8th Congressional District that includes West and North, uh, Northwest Chicago suburbs. This is a direct assault on women's health for political purposes and must stop. I am calling on Congress to pass a clean anti-Zika bill now. Too many lives of pregnant women and their children depend on immediate action, not dithering by Congress, end quote. Now, that ultimately resulted in... Da, 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 they worked out a deal. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, September 28th, uh, NPR reports Congress ends SPAT agrees to fund $1.1 billion to combat Zika. And that uh, article notes that, quote, after nearly seven months of bickering and finger-pointing, Congress on Wednesday agreed to allocate $1.1 billion to help fight the spread and effect of the Zika virus. The deal is part of a broader agreement to continue to fund the government after the fiscal year ends on Friday and the current budget expires. It brings to an end a partisan fight that has had the unusual effect of delaying funding to deal with what all sides agree is a public health emergency. The delay came out because of disagreement over side issues like funding for Planned Parenthood and whether the money should be considered emergency spending. Uh, End quote. So an interesting part of that and uh, it is interesting how the, the Zika virus from its Inception, the the inception of the hype, where they were talking about the microcephaly in in Brazil and the, these babies being born, women, you got to stop having babies. A lot of people were suggesting that there was a eugenics type angle to that, and here we are at Planned Parenthood and the issue of Planned Parenthood funding. So that is an interesting part of this story, but of course it ends as usual with Congress giving them the money anyway. So um, for people who need to know more about Planned Parenthood and their links to eugenics, I would suggest episode 271 of the Corporate Report podcast, Planned Parenthood Exposed. So um, there's that aspect to it as well. Uh, again, all the links to all of those will be in the show notes, so you can explore that to your heart's content. Let's move on to the next question. This one from Elizabeth, who writes, I'm sick of my tax money funding wars. What do I do? How do I practice counter-economics? A very good question. And for people who don't remember or don't know about counter-economics, I will, I will direct you to episode 309 of The Corporate Report, where we talked about solutions, agorism, where we discussed Samuel E. Konkin III and counter-economics and agorism. Also, I will direct you to my interview with Derek Brose on on specifically the topics of agorism and counter-economics. So there's that basis, but if you are interested in counter-economics and want to know how you can participate in it and withdraw your support for the U.S. war machine or wherever you happen to be living by withdrawing your uh, taxes to the extent possible, uh, there are Lots of different ideas, and I'll, I'll just point you to an article that I wrote uh, a couple of months ago called Dear Government, Deliver Us from Freedom, which starts by saying, Freedom, terrible, terrible freedom. It's almost like people are naturally inclined to seek it out, and if you're not careful, it can pop up anywhere. Take this peer-to-peer economy that the plebs are talking about these days. They actually want to take trade products and services directly without going through the transnational corporate slave structure that we're sp- we've spent so long honing to perfection. The nerve... And apparently it's working out for them. Did you know that professionals who sell their services directly to clients through the P2P economy are now making a median income of $61,000 a year, higher than the national average of $54,000? And that's just the income they're willing to admit to making. Who knows how much people make working under the table for cash or participating in community exchanges. None of that income will ever be taxed, of course. So who exactly is going to pay for the Pentagon's next trillion-dollar boondoggle or the next war of aggression in the Middle East? End quote. Um, And that article goes on to talk about more aspects of that peer-to-peer economy, which I think people might get hung up on the technological aspects of this and as if it's about the technology itself. It isn't. It is fundamentally about community and building community. And there are technologies now that make that community building much easier than it was a couple of decades ago or a few decades ago, where people were could have that tendency to be more isolated units within a larger neighborhood that they don't know. Well, now there are technologies that are coming that can cr- get people to at least transact with each other, which is a type of interaction which could lead to community. But again, let's not put the cart before the horse. 
absolutely you have to have community in place in order to practice counter-economics. If you are the only person in your area who knows about or cares about counter-economics, you're not going to have much success living a counter-economic life. Um, So whether those connections are formed online or in the real world, they have to take place in the real world. And uh, you have to have a community a community of interest of people who know about and are passionate about this, which is why building that community is such an integral part of this whole process. And that's why the Corbett Report exists. It is to spread this information, spread the awareness, to light the spark that gets people excited about things like this so that they can create the communities that enact it in the real world. They already exist to a certain extent here and there, and you can participate in this and that, but it's the the understanding of the bigger picture and how we bring that all together comes through the building of these communities. So that's really the, the central question here. And it relates, actually, very well to another question that I received via email from Rob, who writes, Is there any forum for meeting people in our area, or any area of New Zealand for that matter? Is there a way to connect with a peer-to-peer economy in the real world, and not just the virtual? Well, that's an excellent question, Rob. So I don't live in New Zealand, never set foot in New Zealand. I only know a couple of people from New Zealand, so I don't have extensive contacts there. I can't give you that level of specificity. Hopefully, there are some Kiwi listeners in the audience who can direct you to some, so, or, or can get start a forum or a community or can direct us to one. If you do know one, please leave one in the comments so that uh, some Kiwi listeners can get connected. But again, this does go to that fundamental question about community and finding community. So on that note, I again, as I record this, I'm going to record an interview with Derek Bros again, talking about the concept of freedom cells that I think is part of the fostering of the core kernel for what can hopefully become that flowering of community. So we'll talk more about that quite soon on the Corbett Report. And again, if there are any listeners in New Zealand who know of any good resources for people who are looking for that, that type of community, please do let us know. All right. Let's move along to the next question. This one's coming in from the SpeakPipe application. It is an audio question from the listener, Daryl. I need some information maybe on uh, a letter or, or, or paper or something like that or a flyer to hand out, pe- hand out to people to just give them uh, t- some information about the U.S., you know, uh, U.S. government, a rundown, you know, because a lot of people don't know and they need to be enlightened and maybe they'll join the bandwagon. Get back to me as soon as possible. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Daryl. It's a good question. It's an important one. It is good, again, if you're community building to have physical things that you can take out and show people in the real world. I don't specialize in pamphlets and letters and flyers and things like that. Um, So, again, if there are people out in the audience who have resources like that or can direct us to one, please do put them in the show notes, put them in the comments, I should say. But uh, I do have one particular resource uh, that I created for the Federal Reserve documentary, Century of Enslavement, CorbettReport.com slash Federal Reserve, all one word. Just type that into your browser. You will get to the Century of Enslavement page of Corbett Report, where it has the documentary on YouTube. It has the downloadable links for the MP3 and the MP4. It has the complete hyperlink transcript of the entire documentary. I hope people appreciate what a resource that is. And... Also, it has an information flyer that you can print off in color or in black and white, and it just has some bullet points about the Federal Reserve, just some did-you-knows to get people interested, and then a link to the, uh, the Federal Reserve documentary. So that might be one way if you're interested in spreading awareness about the Federal Reserve or about the monetary system and that level of the matrix. That's a resource that I have on CorbettReport.com. But again, if people know of other good resources for people to hand out, let us know. Uh, Let's move on to the next question. This one coming in from JK, who writes, Can you share some of your best research tools? For instance, I go to the National Security Archive um, at the George Washington University. Do you have any to share? Thank you for the question. Uh, It's a good question. Uh, There are, well, there are some sites that I guess I'll plug here. Uh, Thank you for giving me the opportunity to give a big shout out to History Commons, specifically their September 11th timeline. Absolutely invaluable for 9-11 researchers. I cannot stress how incredible a resource the uh, History Commons 9-11 timeline is for people interested in 9-11. 
it is so, so important for so much of the research that I do uh, that it, it, the way that it's laid out, you can search by person, you can search by event, you can search by date or time, you can search in all sorts of different ways, and you can find connected uh, resources all about one entity or one individual or one event. Um, and it, it, most importantly, it has the source links to all of the source information that it, that it condenses down there. It's such a good resource. So... Uh, I hope you'll check it out if you haven't before. I'll put the link in the show notes, obviously. Or um, if you have used them in the past, please do support their work. Uh, so important. Such an important resource. Um, other sites, I mean, I, I don't think I'm breaking any new ground here. I wish I had some secret you know, site that had all, all the research in one place, but I don't think such a site exists. But uh, archive.org, it's not a big secret, but it is a very valuable resource. Um, just in terms of the the audio and video and text files that it has on there, just generally that you can search out. But also they have the Wayback Machine, which is exceptionally important and valuable for uh, pages that go down the memory hole. There's a lot of them you could find on the Wayback Machine. It's a very good resource. They have the TV News Archive, which is extremely... It's a wonderful tool that I don't even use enough, but it is a good tool to have out there where you can search... Uh, through the closed captioning uh, for any term or person or whatever, uh, through any news coverage going back, I don't know, I think it must be three or four or five years now. I don't even know how much they have now. But really, any of the major channels in the U.S. anyway, CNN or C-SPAN or NBC or whatever, you can search um, and find the video of... uh, It's such an incredible resource. Um, And... Our somewhat related September 11th TV archive that is on archive.org, where they have the the TV uh, coverage from various stations on, from 9/11, 9/12, 9/13, 9/13, all of it there, hour by hour. Uh, again, an extremely important resource there. So, th- those are some great resources. Um, uh, also on archive.org, there's a collection called the National Security Internet Archive, aka the Central, the Citizen Intelligence Agency, which says uh, the files were collected from that one archive, Muckrock, Nara, the National Security Archive at GWU, Hood College, the Black Vault, the Government Attic, Paperless Archives, Ernie Lazar, the International Center for 9/11 Studies, as well as various other historians, collectors, and activists. Lots of really fascinating documents in there. So if you're ever looking for something to read. Go there. I'll put the link in the show notes as usual. But I would say, generally speaking, it's not a question of having a site that is a be-all and end-all for all research on anything. It's generally, I have a topic and I search for information on that topic. So really, it comes down to search engines. And start page is where I generally start. So startpage.com. Nothing fancy there. And it's not even complicated searching. Just knowing how to use basic Boolean operators, just quotation marks and what have you, around search terms is... You will be surprised how really powerful that can be. Um, For an example of that, I'll throw you back to what is Planet 5250. It was kind of a mini QFC I did from a listener who had a question. And so I show in that video, I show you how I would go about researching a question. And uh, you can see step by step how I go through start page and how that how that process works. Um, and on the in, uh, as a somewhat related, I had an episode of Corporate Report Radio called "Documents for Your Info Arsenal," talking about various documents that everyone should download and have in their back pocket because they're interesting documents. And you could add millions more, I'm sure, to that list. But those were just some of the ones that came to me at that time. So, so there you go. Those are some resources that I'll throw you to. Thank you for the question. Um, here we have a question in from Joe who writes, should I give my kids the red pill? I don't want to stifle the exuberance and optimism that my kids have. I don't want to take away their happiness. I really don't want to see them end up like me, twisted, bitter, cynical, skeptical, and paranoid. I'm not sure what to do here. I know that my kids will never be able to fight against the evil that truly does exist and make the world a better place if they don't take the pill and actually be able to see the things that they will need to fight against. But as Morpheus said... After this, there's no turning back. After you take the red pill, there is no way to unsee the matrix. So, are you going to give your kids the red pill? Are you going to burden your children with the knowledge of the dark side? And uh, thank you for the question, Joe. It is a very good question, and I'm sure it is one that parents think about and struggle with. For myself, it is not something that I struggle with. Because my question 
My counter question would be, what is the alternative? Are you going to lie to your children their entire lives just so that they feel happy because, you know, it's easier to live in a lie? That's, I mean, that's horrific. I would never do that. I, I don't plan on lying to my children to make, to make the world seem like a happy, wonderful place. Um, that that's just goes against everything that I believe in morally as a parent in, in every way. So, no, I'm not going to lie to them. Um, now, uh, again, the question is how do you present the red pill to them. And that's the real question about this, I think, because obviously I'm not sitting there with my three-and-a-half-year-old son talking about, now, 9-11 was a false flag event orchestrated with by elements. Of, I mean, obviously, I, I'm not having those levels of conversations. So there's age-appropriate materials that you uh, converse with your children about. Um, and also, the other part of this that I, I do think about quite explicitly, is that I never want to teach, to, to tell my children conclusions. So this is how the world is. This is how it works. And this is who's in charge. And this is what's behind it all. Because I have the truth. And let me just download it into your head. I never want it to be about that. It has to be about them learning and understanding and discovering this for themselves. They have to be a part of that process. So I never want to just give conclusions to my children and make them memorize them by rote. I want to, but I'm certainly not going to lie to them, but I will allow them to develop and through their natural curiosity, and I will give them factual information about that will hopefully lead them to valid conclusions. But I don't want to be an authority on high handing them conclusions ready-made and a worldview, you know, all set for them. Um, That's for them to come to. And every person takes this information in different ways. Every person understands it in different ways. Everyone puts it into their own context that's part of their personality. And uh, again, that can't be dictated. I mean, you talk about being bitter and cynical and skeptical and paranoid, and I don't think of myself in any of those terms. I think of myself as realistic about, and hopefully not naive, but I, I certainly don't think of myself as a bitter, skeptical, twisted person who's wallowing in hatred or you know, self-pity or anything of that sort. So, again, it's a question of how individuals will interpret this, and you can't prejudge that with your children. Now, again, I'm not a person on high who's saying I'm the best parent in the universe and I know everything about everything. I mean, it is going to be interesting and I'm sure a struggle. How do you present this information in what context and how do you get children interested in learning about the world and how it really works for themselves without just giving it to them? I mean, that's that's an ongoing process and my oldest boy is three and a half. My daughter's half. So I obviously haven't encountered that yet. So it'll be a learning process, but uh, hopefully there will be more time to talk about that in the future. Uh, Let's go to the last audio question of the day. Uh, We have an audio question in from Sam. As a libertarian and a, and a, and a, and a, I guess an ANCAP, um, although I'm really kind of a a blend of everything. um, My question to you is um, being a person who thinks that changing the system from within uh, is worth the effort um, and looking at being a voluntarist as something that I actually practice uh, pretty practically most of the time, is it easier for you living in Japan in a place that is you know that that isn't your your home country and doesn't have the temptations or the trappings of familiarity? to to lure you into the system is it easier for you to be a voluntarist in japan um and and uh, or could you do it anywhere anytime any place and I'm, I'm suspecting you probably could but let's maybe was it easier for you to become a voluntarist uh if you were living in japan as opposed to living in canada or in another country all right hey listen as always uh, I find your stuff some of the most compelling on the on the internet, and highly recommend it to anyone who has an open mind and uh, is is interested in learning more about the world around them. Thanks for what you do. Look forward to uh, being able to boost my contribution to your show in the near future. And um, as always, I stay tuned to the Corbett Report. Thank you, James. 
thank you for that question, Sam. That is a genuinely interesting question, and I don't believe I've ever been asked it before, and I've never even really put a lot of thought into it before. So, if the question is, is it easier to be a voluntarist in a foreign country, like for me here in Japan? I guess there are a couple of ways we can answer that question. One of them is a very practical sense. Uh, I am not legally entitled to, to vote in Japan, so from that perspective, I'm a voluntarist by default. I can't participate in the political system, even if I wanted to. But on a deeper level, on a more subtle level, level uh, there is, uh, I suppose, having an outsider perspective, especially from, I mean, not moving from Canada to the U.S. or something like that, but moving to a completely different political landscape with a completely foreign culture, does give you an outside perspective on the political process. And I... I I mean, maybe there is something to seeing the uh, the political process from a from a distance like that, from in a detached way like that, that helps you to understand that all the political process is the only thing that it is is a tool of social control to get people to comply with the ruling oligarchs, the, the oligarchy itself. Um, and in the Western political context, that broadly translates into democracy. We we vote in people who will speak for us and basically are you know negotiate a better deal with the oligarchs. <laughs> and uh, in the Japanese context, it isn't even really about that. I mean, there's democracy, but when the same party has been in power for almost the entirety of the post-war period, the last 60, 70 years now, um, that's a sign that it's not really about, it's not the same type of political process going on here, but it is still the same goal, which is to get people to comply with the social order and the, the oligarch the oligarchy that exists here and all of that. So so perhaps having an outside perspective on that helps to come to an understanding of that quicker. I like to think that if I had stayed in Canada, I still would have come to these conclusions. Uh, unfortunately, there's no way to to uh, experience or run tests, uh, counterfactual tests about your life. So I, I'm, I don't have any way of knowing that or proving it, but I, I think I would arrive at that because I think it is a logical process that arrives, uh, that one eventually arrives at uh, state, uh, anti-statism. But how, how can I say? It's an interesting thought. If there are other expats in the crowd, I'd be interested to hear your experiences on that as well. And speaking of, throwing the microphone over to you guys, uh, there are, as always, at the end of this edition of Questions for Corbett, some questions for you that I'm going to throw over at you guys, because I think you guys will probably have some interesting answers to these questions. One of them is from the previous edition of QFC in the comments section. We had this question in from Dan Man Ultra. One thing I feel would be really important or helpful for getting off the grid would be generating our own source of electricity. Do you ever plan to address this idea, or have you already done so? Uh, thank you for the question. I believe we may have tangentially touched on the idea of a decentralized power grid um, with Arthur Gunderson in an interview that I did with him years ago. But no, I haven't really covered it in depth. I, we talked about thorium power and things like that, but not in depth. And I completely agree. I absolutely 100% agree. The question of energy production is really the fundamental underlying one for creation of civilization. So if we do want to create an alternative civilization or at least some way of surviving outside of the system as it exists, yes, energy production will be one of the absolute keys. So what are your guys' thoughts on that question? I know there's a lot of different ideas out there and a lot of people very strongly believe this or that about free energy and things like that. Um, I'm interested to see what links you have and what sources that you guys use for that. So I'm turning the question over to you guys. Uh, another one is an email I got from Ben who asks, uh, in educating my cousin from Germany, I'm struggling to find any good alternative information in new sites such as yours in German. Do you have or know of someone who can suggest some site? So uh, thank you again for the question and I will turn it over to any Germans in the crowd, any German speakers, any people with contacts in Germany. What are some good German alternative news uh, and information sites? And then the final question for you uh, is in from uh, Corporate Report member Shaq, who sent an email asking, I woke up to what's happening around the world with 9-11. I was wondering what topic caught the attention of others that made them wake up from slumber to reality and got them going. Would love to see a poll on your website and maybe a few other alternative mediums on this. Wonder what the statistics would tell us about this. Uh, thank you very much for the question, Shaq. It is an interesting question because I've certainly had it many, 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 many times and 
people who have listened to my podcast have probably heard it many, 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 many times about my waking up and 9-11 and the money masters and finance and all of that and how I ultimately arrived at where I'm at. Um, but I'd be interested to hear about other people's process. I wonder, you know, certainly uh, in my age group, I would imagine 9-11 was a transformative event for many people, but who knows? Who knows how people arrive on this path? I'm sure everyone has their own interesting story to tell, so I'd be interested to hear some of yours. Again, you can leave your comments. Obviously, you can leave comments on YouTube, but Corporate Report members, please do leave your comments on the Corporate Report website, and if you have questions for next edition of QFC, please leave them there as well. I'm looking forward to answering your questions again next month, I hope, November. Um, and on that note, that this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com wrapping things up for another edition of QFC, thanking you for your participation, and looking forward to talking to you again real soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.